0: Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related. Brought to you by the Jumper. My name, my name is Ben. With me, as always, is the Jumper himself, Mr. Cole Hornaday. Hey, Cole. Hey, there. And with us today is the author of Dead End Kids, an award-winning book that was out last year. His new book, No Heroin, was released this September from Source Point Press. We're happy to welcome Frank Gogol. Welcome to the show, Frank. Frank. And that's the hey most, guys how's it
1: going good
0: that's that's the most announcery i get at all all right so that was good an announcery though
2: we're happy I'm, yeah I like the timbre of your voice it was nice that
0: was so, very good yeah so we actually we actually we gonna have you on the show last march but the uh the pandemic got in the way so we're happy to have you back yeah. um yeah so let's just uh let's uh let's start talking about uh you frank um who are you really?
2: Where'd you come Hi, from? Your background. What originally inspired you to to write and create? Because you have been damn prolific in the last couple of years, and it's kind of astounding.
1: Um, well, that's that's a longer question. Than I think most people think it's going to be, uh, but I'll try to do like a cliff notes version.
0: Yeah, I did. Um, I did read the uh, I did read the uh, the bio you have at the end of of grief and you have quite the uh, quite the 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 tragic backstory frank
1: yeah like like every superhero I, you know i had to come up through all the the bs um well no but yeah I, I definitely i had a a bad childhood like in a you know hollywood kind of way like you know my parents had drug issues and i grew up in like a really poor small town with uh Bad, bad education system and you know, a lot of drugs and, and and crime in the area so it wasn't it wasn't ideal uh, and that was actually like a big part of how i got into comics uh you know sort of like my escapism uh you know kind of sneaking away to read batman and, and superman and kind of zone out from, from all the bad stuff uh but uh part, part of what kind of hurt about reading comics uh when i was a kid was like you know like i love batman i love superman i love spider-man and like but for the most part, they don't re- deal with real world issues. Like, you know, Bruce Wayne's a billionaire. Like he's just never ever gonna be able to be in a story that would would speak to somebody who's had my life experience. Superman is like the, the perfect person. He's like every person that didn't live where I grew up. Um, you know, and Spider-Man was a little bit closer, but still like leagues and leagues away from like the kind of people that I knew and like the kind of life I had lived. Um, so when I started writing comics, like, one of the things I set out to do was shine a light on those kind of darker parts of uh, my own personal history to kind of talk about some things and create characters that a different kind of reader can identify with, or more readers than are currently in comics. Um, so, like, now, yeah, Think Kids is about some kids who live in the suburbs and poor area and, and are, are particularly troubled. *No you know, heroin is it's about uh, a recovering drug addict and sort of like what her journey is like. Um, so just kind of, you know, filtering my life through these stories in a way that uh, is meaningful to me in terms of like these things that, that are important to me and uh, but also are there for, you know, different kinds of readers to connect with who maybe aren't a Superman fan or maybe they are. But, uh, yeah, let me said, like it's, it's very much about me creating comics that I wish I had had available to me as a kid so I can kind of see myself in the books. Mm hmm. Yeah. So tell us about starting
2: um, Sar- uh, Source Point Press. How did that come about?
1: Um, so I got involved with Source Point through my first book, Grief, which I have a prop right here of. Yay, props. Boom. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I like props. Um, but yeah, uh, Grief was my first book. Uh, it came out originally in 2017. Uh, it's a short story collection of all my early work. Uh, it was a Kickstarter at first. And then. Um, a former Marvel editor, Andy Schmidt, who was my uh, sort of writing mentor uh, when I got started, he actually pitched on my behalf to Sourcepoint. Um, so, like, I never—I've never actually pitched a book before, which is kind of hmm. weird to say. Huh. Um, but yeah, Andy took the book. Andy took the book to Sourcepoint, um, and they picked it up for uh, a joint publishing program between the two companies, Comics Experience, which Andy runs, and uh, Sourcepoint Press. So that's sort of how I got in at SourcePoint. Um, and uh, for anyone who's not familiar with SourcePoint, they're, uh, I'd say we can call them a middle-sized publisher now, mid-sized, medium. Um, they're doing 10 or 12 books a month through Diamond, uh, real indie vibe, you know, they're, they're not willing to, they're willing to take chances and do black and white books and one-shots and stuff that other publishers have kind of shied away from because they're not necessarily commercial. Um, but really just like a good punk rock kind of, you know, sure. grassroots type publisher, and and I love working with them, um, and and you know, grief is a testament to the kinds of books they're they willing to pick up. It's it's a short story collection. It's about really heavy topics, and, and you know, not not your typical commercially successful comic book, but they believed in it, and we've been able to really get a lot of mileage out of it. It's it's on its second printing now. Uh, got nominated for a Ringo Award in 2019. So I mean, it's it's they. It, they took a chance, and it's paying off, and I appreciate that so much. Um, but that opened the door for books like Dead End Kids and No Heroin and um, the recently announced Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job, the sequel to Dead End Kids, um, a, a couple books that aren't announced yet. So that's – yeah, getting involved there was – I owe Andy a huge uh, debt of gratitude for, for sending them my way or sending me their way, uh, and it's been a really, really just great relationship so far.
0: Yeah. And it will
1: be.
2: You Dead really? and Kids, the first Dead and Kids series was was kind of an astounding sleeper hit. Um, uh, I uh, read about it and and read a couple of great blurbs on it and thought, well, I should pick this up because with my luck, it's going to become one of those sleeper hits and the first print is going to skyrocket at $200 and I'm never going to be able to get my hands on it. So I jumped and I read it and it was probably one of the most charming things I read uh, that year. and. Um, and it had a vibe about it that really, really excited me. I grew up in rural Oregon in the 70s. And so there was that quality of, there's a line that is, um, let me go dig it up here real quick. It's a line from the Stand By Me movie, but I think King also has it in uh, in the, the original novella, The Body, where he closes the story and he says, I never had any Freds later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone. And I started reading... Um, and I started reading Dead End Kids and I was like, this tone just like resonates all through this. These are, these are the, these are believable people. I'm already caring about them. And um and it didn't hurt that like the opening lines of the story were had a similar resonance for me where um you said, you know the story, bunch of kids from screwed up homes meet, and it's the best years of their lives. And then then there's the kicker in the gut, and you said, and this isn't that story. Yeah. <laughs> So I was all the way in. Um, tell us about the inspiration of that first Dead End Kids series. It's kind of, a it, it has that king quality, um, but it's also very, very personal. What what inspired that story uh, in you?
1: Uh, you know, it, it really was a couple things. Um, so the pitch for anyone who's watching, listening uh, for Dead End Kids is it's uh, three kids in 1999 who are trying to solve their friend's murder. So it's, it's definitely a little bit of stand by me a little bit of hardy boys uh, but definitely darker and and a little more violent for sure yeah. um and really for me like it's it's a murder mystery book like it's it's a who done it but like that's so much not the the point of the book for me the the book really is about sort of exploring these childhood traumas and and how as as kids you, you know no matter when you grew up like we we're, we're forced to deal with these situations that are so much bigger than our, our emotional capacity and mental capacity to, to handle these things. And we still have to sort of find ways to get through and, and grow up and become adults and hope to God that these things don't screw us up for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, those are the kinds of things that I worried about as a kid because I did grow up in those you know really poor neighborhoods with other kids who were going through some really awful stuff. So the kids in the book are based on myself and my friends and, and that connection. Um, and it really is about these kids who all have screwed up home lives, but kind of take care of one another. Um, they they kind of are, are sounding boards and, and kind of protective blankets for one another. They're not like fixing anybody's problems. Like I, they're, they're still screwed up, but they're screwed up together kind of thing. Um, and, and I, I love, um, I love Stephen King. Like he's definitely one of the best writers of all time. It's one of my favorites. I love uh, it is one it, in, in this kind of kids on bikes genre. Yeah. Um And Stand By Me, which I mentioned earlier, Um. Stanlot, you know, just movies like that always kind of like really resonated with me, but they always fell a little short for me because like at the end of it, with the exception of a few, it's, it's always, and then the summer ended and we grew up and grew apart. And, you know, that was the best summer of my life when I was 12, but I'm 33 and I'm still very close friends with the kids I grew up with. And I talk to them every day. And even though we all live all over the country now. um. So like, I wanted to kind of Newer version of that coming of age uh, kids on bike story, for a like a nineties generation. Like I grew up at the tail end of the nineties and the early two thousands, so I wanted to kind of update it a little bit. Like most of them are set in the either the sixties, the seventies, and a lot are in the eighties these days. But like, yeah, you know, I wanted to do one for for me and my friends and people who grew up around the time I did. Um, I also wanted to kind of take a look at the genre a little bit and, and kind of turn on its head a little bit like that that opening narration you hit it right on the head you know it's, it's very much about saying that this isn't that kind of story this is because those are stories about kids who are there for each other and then they grow apart or they fix each other and like that just to me never like I said rang true like I'm still a little bit screwed up from my childhood I'm sure most of the people listening probably are um, and, and no matter who my friends were, that was never going to be different, but I'm a better person for having had them. I could have ended up way worse. You know, I could be dead or in jail or strung out somewhere. And like, I'm really grateful that I'm not. And I owe that to the people I grew up with. Um, so I wanted to write a story about that kind of stuff. Um, sure. and I also want a little bit of fun with it. Like, I mean, there's even a line in there in the narration in the first issue where we poke fun at Stephen King, you know, it just kind of, and and, and um john hughes i think it's been so long since i've read it but um yeah so that's i mean that's that's really why i wanted to write it and what it's about but it's also you know, like a, a it's a good story it's an okay murder mystery i guess like if i'm being honest but the murder mystery is not like it wasn't important to me writing it like i knew who killed him i knew how, where i had to get to and i think it does end up shocking people a little bit but uh yeah that was that was like the, the secondary initiative
2: I, uh, it's it still, it still kind of worked with me as a, a successful whodunit because I, you know, what's, we're all taught to figure out done uh, whodunit mystery by the 10 little Indians. And it's just, you know, one, you knock one down and, and, you know, and who all has been introduced into this, into this foray that could have been the guilty party. And when it's somebody that you least expect, I think that's a good turn of, uh, a good turn of storytelling. And I did not foresee who who the bad guy was, nor did I foresee the ending. So um, I thought it was uh, an accomplished story. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it both times because my short-term memory sucks anymore. So <laughs> so it's like
1: that's a good thing. I'm telling you that's a good thing because now I watch things twice and I'm so bored. But if I could go watch Jurassic Park with fresh eyes or something like that, any of my favorite movies with like I'd never seen them before, I'd be so grateful for that.
0: Well, I'm i'm right with you i have such a terrible short-term memory for things that i read and watch i I saw you know, the black adder the whole series i was able to watch it again for the first time because i had forgotten everything um i i appreciated the uh i appreciated the setting in 1999 because it was like there you know there's some like y2k references and you know there's an off uh um a lyric from the Offspring uh, at the beginning, of one and like posters in the clubhouse for Offspring and for Pearl Jam and uh, yeah, it was like that's like that that speaks right into my wheelhouse of pop culture around that time.
2: So and yeah, you, you managed to wrangle some um, some cool uh, 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 alternate cover artists for Dead and Kids, right? I mean, you got you become a real pro about wrangling some really astounding artists to do um i don't um, credit for that but it's
1: it's very rarely me. really yeah right. well it, these days it's more me than it was but uh like the the best cover i think for that first while i'm a dead End kid was the ben templesmith one but uh that was the guys at anomaly comics they, they reached out to ben and had right. that existing relationship and I, I got i was able to to become friends with ben because of that and he's done covers for all my books since and you know through me just now um, but yeah, I, the, the, retailers have been, uh, really supportive of the books and have really kind of like gone all in and got really excellent. I mean, we had peach Momoko covers for no heroin this year. And we had that, like, even before she like got real popular, we had all three of them in the bag and like, it just kind of worked out really well. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I wish I could take credit for that. Um, I'm starting to build up that Rolodex and it's getting easier, but still it's, I'm very lucky.
2: Yeah, I I I am very fond of Ben Temple Smith and his his uh he's not producing work at the regularity that he once did, and I oh, yeah. found myself um, going back and rereading uh, Wormwood and stuff like that and and rediscovering my fondness for that quirky stuff. He, um, if I remember correctly, he lives here in Seattle, right, Ben?
0: I mean, i he's
1: obviously not a local Seattleite, but he I thought he's. What's that? I think, I think he might split his time between uh, the Seattle area and the Houston area. I, I could be wrong about that, but uh, I, I know i does hang out in the Northwest a little bit, though.
2: So um, moving, let's move uh, to the next phase of the Dead End Kids brand um, and the latest series, which kind of uh, surprised me, didn't have anything to do with our previous characters. Um, this is a, so Dead End Kids um uh, uh, oh gosh! No, I'm, I'm well, I don't want
0: to. I'm not going to spoil anything, but it would be kind of hard to to continue the story. <laughs> it's true. Well,
1: that's, that's, what I was that, that's why it ended up the way it was because it okay. just I put myself into a corner. Let's let's take a step back. All right. Um, yeah. So getting kicked
2: to suburban job. There you are. All yes.
1: Right. Uh, I, the camera flipped, so I don't know which way to go. There we go. Yeah. So that's the uh, the first issue that's coming out in January.
2: Right. Um, so we've all had the pleasure of reading that one. So, yeah, I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit taken aback. It was not even any characters, but I did love the fact that it's still the same brand and it's characters of a similar ilk, but an entirely different story, entirely different context. Can you uh, fill us in on what happens in, um, uh,
1: in, in the new one? Sure. Um, so... Uh, the Dead End Kids of Suburban job is, uh, it is the story of three kids, three teens in 2008, who are the sort of survivors of people who died on or because of 9-11. Um, it's, it's a heist book. Uh, so it's a different kind of crime genre we're exploring. Uh, we've got three new kids, like you were saying, we've got Tori, who is the daughter of a first responder who died on the scene at Ground Zero on September 12th. We've got Ryan, who is the brother of a soldier who's killed in Afghanistan a few years after the matter. And then we've got Amna, who is a young Pakistani woman, a young Pakistani-American woman, who is sort of living in a world of exacerbated racial tensions in a sort of post-9-11 era. Um, And uh, the the book kind of came around, or came about rather, for kind of the weirdest reasons. Um, The first book was like a really wild success in a way that – nobody not even not even me was was expecting or could have hoped for and i'm incredibly grateful for that but uh if i'm being honest like the whole experience of having a, a really successful book is kind of exhausting especially mm-hmm. if you're an indie guy and you don't have like a marvel or a dc as like a buffer like i had retailers reaching out to me every day for almost three months on my personal cell phone like no no idea how they got like a hold of my contact info or whatever And like again i'm I'm grateful for that but it's also it's it's really tiring uh, at the time, it honestly was like kind of terrifying. I did just kind of out of the frying pan, the fire kind of thing. Um, but on top of that, uh, on top of the book coming out and being successful, I was doing conventions. I did uh, 21 and 22 last year. I went and did 21 store signings in states that aren't the one I live in. Um, a lot of flying sort of same day back and forth, you know, a couple states over. Um, and I got married last year. So amongst all this, I was getting, just, you know, playing wedding and, and it was, it was wild. Um, so it was a big, good year in a lot of ways, but it was very, very hard. So um, but, uh, can, were you all, had, do you
2: have salesmanship in your blood, Frank, or was this something you had to learn? Did you, um? was it second nature for you to sit there at the tables at conventions and hawk your wares and, and field all those retailer calls?
0: We, or- we, we find that a lot of uh, comics creators are, big introverts and hate yeah. the convention scene and having to meet people
2: <laughs> just want to sit at home alone and and work on their art and uh don't want to deal with people about it but um was that true for you or did you were the things you
1: just had to learn <laughs> um, you no know it's it's true and not true and what i thought about myself ended up not being necessarily the truth uh <laughs> so i i wouldn't say i'm an introvert like I'm not extremely extroverted, like I'm not incredibly outgoing, but I am a very driven person and I am very practical. And like some of the things that I have had to say to myself over the years are, you know, like you can, you can be the next Alan Moore and you can write the next Watchman. But if you're not out there letting people know about it or putting it in people's hands, if you're not hustling to get on podcasts and and YouTube channels and you're not at cons hand selling books, like no one's going to know how good you are. I mean, I'm not saying I'm good, People say I'm. I, I hope they're right. Um, but if I am, the only way people are going to know is if I let them know. And so, it's 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 never been a question about whether I want to be out there selling. It's a question of like, do I have to be, and the answer is a hundred percent yes. Um, so what I, I, I honestly don't know if I'm not if I am or not. I just go out and I do it because it needs to get done. It's it's like taking the dog out in the morning because she's got to go pee. You know, it's like it, it's what you have to do, so you go do it um, so- because you will piss all over your carpet. You don't.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are ramifications. Uh, exactly. About tell us about collaborating uh, with uh, Nanad. I'm gonna pronounce mispronounce Nanad's last name. Um,
1: Savit bit, Yeah. Great job. Uh, yes. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that's about as close as you're you gonna get. Uh, I don't actually know. Um, I know how to say Nanad's first name. It's uh it's, the E is like a long A. Nanad. Okay. Um. But that's only because uh, I had him send me an audio file of him saying his name <laughs> um, when when we were first collaborating. So Nana and I have been working together uh, yeah. since the beginning of my career, essentially. He drew the very first story that I ever wrote and produced. Uh, it's the last story in grief. It's called Embrace. Um, he did six of the ten stories in grief. He did all of Dead End Kids. Um, and he felt so left out of No Heroin that he did some fan art for it. So, I mean, he's been involved in, in everything so far um but i uh, Nanad, uh yeah he's my oldest longest collaborator um we got together because i reached out to him um i got had i got my first script done and i was ready to, to to you know have comics with my name on it and i sent him an email or i think maybe you read it um for this this black page or story do you do you have time do you want to tackle it and i we never looked back, and like I have plans to do books with him for as long as I can afford him until he prices me out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I um uh, I I felt like his his style was really really perfect for, um in particular the sorry that's that's my cat, um <laughs> the world's longest cat just made a empty. um yeah I love his covers a lot love his um his figures and his expressions. Um, so let's talk about, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Suburban Job. Um, so it is, uh, I, I felt like we, we dropped the threads of that, um, this is going to be another four-parter, correct?
1: Yeah. So the first series was actually Three Issues. Um, I was, I was a young, less well-endowed financially writer at the time. And I thought Three Issues was a, a good financial risk to take, um, worked out really well. God bless. Um, but uh, yeah, this one will be four issues. Uh, it's gonna same team is back together from the original, so we got Nate on interiors, we got Chris Med, who did the art for No Heroine on the covers again, uh, Sean Reinhardt lettering again, um, me writing. So yeah, the, the week length, but somebody's got to be it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's gonna run four issues, starting in January through April. Great, great.
2: Um, and what's the uh, what's the retailer solicitation? Uh, response been thus far all things considered
1: uh we're right now it's been available for pre-order for as as of this recording just a couple of days um but the retailers i've shared it with in advance um have, have been really enthusiastic about it um okay. you now they, they, they remember how well the first one did um and no heroin and the pandemic situation really helped me um sort of silver linings here uh, but helped me really forge some of those relationships and and build new ones and um, yeah, I, I've got a, a really good retailer network now. Um, so between the success of Dead End Kids and No Heroin, um, I think they're, they're really excited to, to see more Dead End Kids. Um, and, and I honestly like, I, I've had retailers asking me with some regularity over the last year when the next volume is coming. Great. So those were the fun ones I sent it to and, and yeah, they, they were just really excited. I'm excited, so.
2: I'm watching an interesting thing happen. I'm sorry, Ben, do you have a question?
0: I was just going to say that I, I remember. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that retailers are more are excited about more Dead End Kids. I remember when uh, issue one came out. Cole alluded to this earlier, and it just flew off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the uh, Chris, the our friend who manages Comics Dungeon, was uh, upset because retailers have no idea when this when that's going to happen. And so oh, wow. if he'd known, he would have ordered you know twice as many copies as he did.
1: You know, I actually um, I did a signing at Comics Dungeon, and we it was, we were in a really weird spot because the book got delayed two weeks. Right? The first issue came out two weeks late, and I had set up all these signings all over the place beforehand. So I had to do oh, that's right about, about ten signings with my own stock, which wasn't very much. I had about a oh, hundred copies, and and they were already going for 20 or $30 on eBay before it released. So it was, there, there, I'd like to say only five, five copies per store, like, and just really kind of rationed it out. That made for for a hard thing, but I, I think Chris Chris's store was either second or third um, that I went to and, you know, I still had copies, so it was okay. Um, but yeah, that was, was pretty wild.
2: <laughs> so I'm kind of looking at how you're branding the Dead End Kids and kind of comparing it to, um, like American Horror Story, where we've got the same brand, um, but it's a different ensemble. Of course, you can't reuse uh, actors in the comics, but um, but it, it, it's a it, it's kind of an umbrella brand, and then thematically things are kind of related in these uh, radically different stories. Um, is is that right? What's your thinking of behind reusing uh, the brand that way or utilizing the brand that way?
1: Um, so- Really, I, I wrote Dead End Kids as like a one-off. Like I, I told the story I wanted to tell, and it was it was well received. And you know, you kind of you can't always hit a home run or know when you're going to hit a home run. So like you don't want to pigeonhole yourself into a situation where like you're, you're writing another one and it might not be as good as the first one. Um, but when the first issue came out, it was really really well received and, and sold really well. Uh, source point game means that hey, if you want to do more of this, we would we would publish it. Um sort of no questions asked, like, you know, just do more of what you were doing and we'll keep making it. Okay. Um and I and I said maybe at the time because A, I was tired like we were talking about earlier. Um I was a little nervous, like you know, lightning doesn't strike twice usually. So like I was like, all right, we did this really well. Like we do we wanna undercut all the success by doing another one and having it come off like badly and not not land the same way. Um, but also I just, you know, the ending of the first one is pretty definitive in a lot of ways. Like to, yeah. to write more stories with those kids would probably take away from the ending, honestly. Like and I I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. Like I don't like I don't like sequels that are, you know, the same thing but bigger. Um, except for Transformers because that's what I go to see Transformers for. Um, but when SourcePoint asked me, I said I said maybe because I don't like to close doors and uh, you know I figured who knows. Um, And I was writing No Heroine at the time. We were finishing up uh, writing that and getting production rolling on that. Uh, But when the winter came and my wedding was in the review and I wasn't traveling so much, I got to sit down and think about it. And and one of the things I did last winter was uh, I watched True Detective Season 3. I was a big fan of the first one. I didn't watch the second one because, you know, the mixed reviews, uh, and I just hadn't gotten to it. I'll I'll see it eventually. But uh, I was pretty excited for the third one. I like Marshall Ali a lot. Um, And I watched it, and it got me thinking about, you know, maybe this is the right format for the series. Like, cause the idea of like dead and kids is, is was supposed to be more universal than just those kids, right? Like a lot of kids live in a lot of bad situations and they deal with a lot of bad stuff when they're younger. And, and I always liked the idea of that being a, a bigger idea than just these these kids. So that the true detective format really kind of made sense. Um, but that was only sort of half the equation. Like I really needed to, to find a story that I wanted to tell and that like meant something to me, like, Writing stories, it takes a lot of like emotional and mental energy, and you know as practical as you want to be about it, and I'm very practical about it. Like it still is hard. Um, so if I'm going to spend and invest that kind of time and, and do you know hundreds of hours of interviews someday about it, like I want it to be something I really care about. Um, so that that was a little bit more of a struggle, kind of finding the right way into it. Uh, but one thing that has always kind of come up over and over in my life over the last you know, 15 almost 20 years is is 9/11. I grew up in New Jersey, on the southern shore of the Ryden Bay, which it looks directly across the southern Manhattan. And I remember on, you know, September 11th standing on our beachfront, looking across and seeing and, and not under the detail what was happening over there. And like, it's always sort of been seared in my mind and, and you know, looking around and seeing the other people experiencing it, too. Um, and, and it got me thinking about, you know, that's, that's something that changed an entire generation of America, no matter how, how old, maybe even the world. Um, but for me, like, I, I grew up in a family of first responders. I knew people who, who went into the city. I, I went to school with kids who lost uncles and cousins because it was, all, it was very close. Um, and it, it got me thinking, yeah, this is this is like one giant universal childhood tragedy in a lot of ways for all the kids who were my age at the time and, and older and younger. and, and now there are kids who are in college who were born after it, who've only ever known sort of a post-9-11 world. And and like just that, that was like the, the engine I really needed to, to start building the story. Like something that's deeply personal to me, but also speaks to a lot of people. Um and then from there I started building out these characters, like Tori, who is the, the daughter of a firefighter who died background zero, and Ryan, whose sister went to Afghanistan and got killed in, in combat. Um, so it's just, you know, it was, it was about finding the right story and, you know, the right way to tell. And both of those things kind of came together about the same time. And it was, it was pretty quick for me to put the story together after that, once I decided it was going to be a heist.
2: Cool. And, um, you mentioned that you're already, are you already, uh, brainstorming, um, another series, another Dead End Kids series? And are you, what type of genres are you toying with for the next one?
1: <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that like dead end kids has an umbrella brand now, Like it's Yeah. yeah there's a, a, after this book comes out, like there'll be a, like a cemented expectation for what a, a dead end kids book would happen and, and that it's going to be a, a coming of age kind of book, but also with a, with a crime story component. Um, so within that framework, I mean, there's there's a ton of opportunity. I, I don't know that there will be a third one. Um, I have ideas for a few more. I know what the last one would be if like we could only tell one more story. I know what that one would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're gonna see how how this this book does and in pre-orders and and you know all the you know kind of reviews and whatnot. And if it, if it's good, I mean, I'll keep making them until I don't have the story anymore. But I'd like to at least do one more.
2: Sure. Well, let's talk about your um, your love of, of, of horror and the supernatural and and move on to, to No Heroin. Where did that story come from?
1: Uh, so so No Heroin, um, just an overview for anyone listening who didn't get a chance to read it. Uh, no Heroin is uh, the story of a young woman named Kayla, who is a recovering drug addict. Uh, she is... Um, She's a monster hunter, a la Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's really what it was. I wanted to tell a Buffy story. Um, And, uh, you know, it's it's really the story of her sort of coming to terms with the fact that she's hurt a lot of people in her life. And even though she's clean now and trying to do the right thing, that doesn't kind of like the slate clean. and, And that it's the journey is, you know, getting clean is just the first step on a longer journey. Um, uh, but that said it's also a you know, a really fun monster hunter book. You know, we got I got to play the genres and different monsters and I had a lot of fun with it. Um that, that was one of the big distinctions between that and, and Dead End Kids is I didn't have a lot of fun when I was writing Dead End Kids. Like I felt I didn't have a bad time. Like I liked writing the book, but like I didn't laugh and I didn't like kind of Read the dialogue and, and stick her to myself. With, with dead end kids, I was or with no heroin, I was able to let loose a little bit. Kayla's attitude is she speaks a lot more like I do, so it was kind of really easy to put in more jokes and 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 have it be a little more fun and lighthearted at times. Um, but it, I think it's honestly a darker book. Uh, but yeah, so that's it's my it's my Buffy love letter.
2: Okay, yeah, I I totally got that. Um, what did strike me as I was reading it is the challenge put to a writer um, not only in character building, not only in storytelling but the world building they have to do in, in a very, very finite, finite space, particularly when it comes to um, telling uh, supernatural adventure stories or occult stories because everybody's got different rules. There are different you know there are different rules for how you tell zombie stories that everybody at some point or another is gonna to wanna to break. There are different rules about how you tell werewolf stories and, and vampire stories and all those kinds of things. Um, granted, there are tropes now that they're actually going to court over some of this stuff for crying out loud. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a there's a whole thing right now about a, a fan fiction where they're trying to sue people over using tropes. Like, wait, those are just out there. Aren't those, those are just out there in the universe for storytellers to to pluck from, or are they? That's that's the precedent that's going to be set. So when you were when you were doing your world building, one of the things that struck me is like, okay, this is a world where um, you were very matter of fact about the vampires coexisting with other people. That they're not. Um, I was not certain if they were a um, a secret society. It's more like they're just dregs along with everybody else in this story. <laughs> they're just they're lost souls as much as any of the other lost souls are that we meet. Is that correct?
1: um yeah you know honestly i didn't think too much about it like like i'm i'm a very economical storyteller i try to be um so like uh i don't know if you guys are familiar with paul aller who uh he's writing gi joe at idw right now and he's done some teenage mutant turtle stuff and some stuff at marvel but uh he was one of my writing uh mentors um and and one of the things he said that really stuck with me and resonated with me with sort of my storytelling sensibilities is he explained um, world building to me as think of the, the you're on the set of a Spaghetti Western, right? And you've got the two guys on either end of, of Main Street and they're going to duel and, and lining either side of the road. You've got the bank and the saloon and the whorehouse and the, the, the bail bondsman and the sheriffs and like, you know, all the, all the little things. Um, and then the director yells cut and everybody breaks character. And then they all walk off the set and, you know, be- you're walking behind the set and you see all the storefronts are really just plywood propped up on, on you know, angled beams. And it's, it's just, it's just set dressing really. I think it's, um, and and that sort of mentality of world building is, you know, you only need to put on the page, what is necessary to tell the story. Anything else is is extra. And then when you're working in a medium that's 20, 24 pages and, a finite amount of space to tell your, your story and there are financial concerns about how long you tell a story for um you know you want to be more economical about how much you put in there um so so i really developed sort of two things one um it's i only put what's necessary on the page because honest to god the reader is going to build such a more vibrant world than i'll be able to explain on the page and they'll like that one better because they invented it in their head um, but two, it's it's a financial consideration. Like, No Heroin was three issues, each issue was 24 pages, Um, and each page cost let's let's say it's a hundred dollars from script page to to letter page. It was way more than that, but like for the the sake of easy math, yeah. So that's twenty four hundred dollars script. You know, it's seven thousand dollars for the for the whole series essentially once you, you know, round it up. Uh, So like, I really was not interested in in spending a whole bunch of extra money to explain vampires and werewolves. Um, from But from where I'm sitting as I, I'm now a reader, right? The book's done. I can't change it now. Uh, but where I'm sitting is, yeah, they're, they're accepted. They're, they're a part of the world, but they're kind of, it's, it's kind of like, like imagine the suburbs, like, you know, crime happens everywhere, but like some people have a lot of dissonance about it. Um, not never in their neighborhood kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, the vampires, werewolves, ghouls, goblins, they, they all exist, but it's kind of like an out-of-sight, out-of-mind um, dissonance thing.
2: Um, so tell me about, uh, tell us about uh, collaborating with Chris, man. Um, what was that like?
1: Uh, Chris, Chris is a buddy of mine going way back. Um, I moved to San Francisco about three years ago. It'll be three years ago at the end of next month. Um, but prior to that, uh, Chris and I shared a comic shop for probably about five years, um, and, uh, and that was all sort of before I had started writing. Um, so I was mildly aware of Chris. Yeah, I knew he did graphic design. I knew he had like, designed the logo for the store where we shopped. Um, and he was, uh, I guess, at least a little bit aware that I was doing the comic writing. Thing, but like, it was never something we talked about until after. Really? Um, but I've known him for a long time. Um, and I love working with Chris. Uh, I always, I, I started to sort of gather a group of collaborators who I really enjoy working with. Yeah, um, and now you're looking for ways to like keep putting them on things. Um, like Chris has done the covers for all the both Dead End Kids series. Uh, he did the interiors for No Heroin. Um, Ahmed Rafa did some of the covers for um, Dead End Kids. He's did the covers for No Heroin. He's doing a one shot with me that's not announced yet. So I I, just, I like working with people over and over again. And Chris is one of my favorite people to collaborate with because. We have that pre-existing relationship so it's just easier to hop on the phone with him and talk to him and and yeah you know, we've worked enough together where i you know i, I kind of know what what he'll deliver and and we're on the same page a lot it's 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 fantastic um what a, what a lot of people don't ask about is is the colorist shauna who's actually chris's daughter um so that, that was yeah which is just kind of like a fun serendipity. Um, he, I, I asked him who he thought would be a good colorist. I like working with artists to color their own work. So that way the, the vision can be more whole and, and there's fewer people to, to like, you know manage along in the process. But um, he wanted to work with the colorist and asked him for suggestions and he, he suggested and She just was, was, just knocked it out of the park. She's just fantastic and, and I can't wait to work with her again on something.
2: So as a writer, Frank, what have you learned? um, What have you taught yourself through collaborating with numerous artists by this point in your career? Because you've worked with with half a dozen or more, I I lost count, but but numerous different artists and different vision of how they make your words come to life. But what have you learned as a writer through that process
1: about how you tell stories? I don't know that my storytelling has changed much um, for, from from working with people. Like I, I, have certain sensibilities that I like in stories that I try to have in my story. I try to write about things that matter. I try to do genre stories where the genre is sort of secondary to the character stuff. Um, I try to do stories that have a little room to breathe with the emotional stuff happening to the characters. And um, none, of, I don't think any of that's changed from the first script I've written. It. Yeah, I've, I've definitely refined it and have gotten better portraying those things. Um but I my collaborators uh, I I try to script loosely um, and and pretty pretty economically like I don't have a lot of words in my script. I don't over dialogue. I got sort of checks balances in my script to keep me from writing too many words on the page or from you know being too cluttered with the, the panel descriptions. Um, and that leads me to really indirect descriptions you know, like story talks for the brain. Right, like sometimes you don't need to describe every little thing. Like I I remember seeing the script for one of the issues of Watchmen, and and one panel description for not Moore that Dave get was the whole page, and yeah. and what I what it, I think I think this is from Watchmen, but Gibbons had to go through with a highlight, two highlighters, one to, to highlight the characters and two to highlight the verbs. So that way he could know who was doing what. And none of the other stuff really mattered to him because he needed to be able to draw the you know the base of what, what was happening. And that really stuck with me. So like I write really lean descriptions and try to not be too wordy because I wanna let Chris and, and Maynard you know have room to, to collaborate on the story, not just execute, like you know, to, to do their vision of it and to, you know, n- know better than me what the right camera angle is or, or you know, whether yeah, you know, this is an upshot, a downshot, should we be closer? Should we be pulled out or, or on Like very rarely do I call out shots and stuff like that unless I'm going for a specific effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in doing that, um, I've had this expend a lot less energy scripting because I'm, I'm not sitting there writing a whole page for each panel, um, which has given me more time to sort of focus on what panels are on the page and, and what order and, and how they're conveying stuff. and. Um, it's been kind of interesting work with Namead so so regularly because I look back at our old scripts and the scripts from Dead End Kids Volume One and the ones we did now, and I, I can definitely see the stuff getting tighter. But also, you can see the trust building over time. Like part of the reason I can just say, you know, Tori talks to Brian's because I know I can trust Namead to to do a killer panel with just that and, and what he wants to show.
0: You're right. You write from a very personal place uh, with a lot of common themes drawn from your life. Uh, We can see in in, uh, the stuff that I've read at least um and, and i know that's you know some comic writers they 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 write comics because they have the story inside them that they want to tell and some you know just some write comics because they like comics and some writers write want to get into comics because they like they want to they have a specific like green hornet story they want to tell or they want to influence where where batman goes uh his journey are you uh do you are you interested at all in working on like licensed properties or are you f- just focused specifically on getting your stories out and just telling your own stories?
1: Uh, for me, the, the priority is always going to be telling my own stories, but uh, I, I am definitely interested in, in working in other people's sandboxes. Uh, I think um, this is less true now than it was a few years ago, but the, the sort of path to becoming a well-known independent creator is you put out, some indie hits you know, i think donny cates he put out you know god country and really got on people's radars and then now he's killing it at marvel on, on every book they do and is easily their most popular writer but using their platform to elevate himself and put out good work and then someday Donnie's gonna in theory go off and just do creator on stuff like mark millar for the rest of his life and that's always sort of the path i've seen for myself um so it's it's like a strategic and practical thing to want to write for marvel or dc uh, but i also really I, I have a lot of love for the marvel um, universe and and you know, the, the books i still read most of what they put out um and i have consistently for, for about 20 years um so I, I i definitely have some stories i'd like to tell i have a, a hawkeye story that i would love to tell Hawkeye's my favorite character um i would definitely like to to do a black panther one shot um i think i don't know that i could in good conscience do more than that no, I, I think that there are More deserving creators who can tell a more authentic Black Panther story than me. But if if somebody wants to give me 20 pages to to hang out with T'Challa for a little bit, I would absolutely jump on that opportunity. I have an Iron Fist story that I'd love to tell. I feel like Iron Fist is one of the most underutilized and underappreciated characters in the Marvel universe, and he's just ripe for like a Mortal Kombat style story. You know, they, they keep getting close to it and doing kind of a version of it, but. I think it's I think it's still on the table. So there's there's some stuff there. I have a Dark Avengers pitch that I'd love to do. It's just like just all the the DC Justice League analogs, but not the ones you're thinking of. So you know, it's like you got Sentry for Superman and Moon Knight for Batman. Like those two right there. That's 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 a powder keg, right? Like that would be such a good book. And then you throw Namor in for for uh, Aquaman, and it just it just it's I I'm gonna tell that story someday.
0: You wait. All right. Looking forward to it. Um, we're coming up on about an hour. Cole, do you have any uh, final questions for Frank? No, oh, I don't.
2: I, I I had a really uh, good time talking with you, Frank, and I'm sorry it was uh, uh, six plus
1: months in the making. Um, <laughs> absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we missed we missed the release of No Heroin, but I'm glad that we could talk about uh, Dead End Dead End Kids too. Yeah. Well, actually,
1: actually. We didn't bring this up yet though, but we can still talk about no heroin in a in a way thats pre is um, so soliciting next to Dead End Kids, the suburban job number one will be the trade for no heroin. So oh, great. So we can kind of we can kind of promote no heroin too. Um yeah, so the, the trail come out uh, the same day as the first edition of Dead End Kids. Um I think it's it's like ten bucks. Like we, we all my books are really cheap and that's something that like I wanted source point to do if i was going to keep working with them so all the trades are ten dollars um so if you heard about it on this podcast and you're reading it definitely go through order that too uh,
2: so where are you encouraging people to get your books you're encouraging them to hit up their um their comic shops or is there another source that they can go to
1: uh I, we, we try to do things that are accessible to everyone who does you know whatever they're going to do um Definitely, I definitely promote comic shops. Um, the, the retailers have taken really good care of me over the last couple of years and really supported me. And I you know, wholeheartedly encourage people to go pre-order books, pre-order them early so that way they're on your retailer's radar. Like you may be the only person checking out dead-end kids at your retailer. And if you let them know, they might order an extra couple copies or they might recommend it to somebody else. And like, there's that word of mouth aspect of it. So I definitely highly and mostly recommend people go to the retailers and pre-order books. Um you can order direct from SourcePoint Press. Uh they have a website, sourcepoint.press. Everything that is in previews is there as well. Uh costs see the same. So it's, you know, if you don't have an LCS near you, you can order for them and they'll come directly to you. Uh there are a couple of other distributors in the mix these days, coinbox Box and, and uh some something else. Um th- those are available. Um but uh yeah, I, th- I think that going through your comic shop is definitely the best way to do it still. So, um, I think that they are the backbone of this industry and then getting the money to them is is the most important thing that we can do as creators and and leaders.
0: Yeah. Support Absolutely. your local business. Uh, Frank, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go?
1: Um, I'm on all the, the social medias and, and all that. Uh, everything's just uh, at Frank Gogol, F-R-A-N-K-G-O-G-O-L or slash Frank Gogol on Facebook. Uh, that's my personal account. I don't do the Facebook page thing, because it's a waste of time. Um, but uh, if you want to, you know, connect with me on Facebook, and you, you want to be a writer, and you have some questions, you want to reach out, that's fine. If you're a fan, you want to tell me how great my stuff is, that's fine, too. Um, you know, I'll take a chance and uh, roll the dice and accept most friend requests and short of anyone having like a, a swastika flying around. <laughs> their, their there.
0: Good policy. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, I tried to try to make it fair. Um, but uh, honestly, the best way to keep up with me is I do a, a newsletter called Caption Boxes. It comes out twice a month. Um, I'm actually gonna write it when we're done here. Um, but that is uh, easy to keep up with me because there's no algorithms and my, you know, there's no you know post missing posts because you're not on. Um, it comes directly to your inbox two times a month, uh, if that. Sometimes it's a little bit less than how busy I am, but it's got updates. It's got pre-order information. It's got um, yeah, just sort of behind the scenes stuff. I was talking about Dead End Kids 2 in there last year, like well in advance. Um, sometimes we do exclusive covers and, and, and sort of swagging, silly crap like that in there. I, I try to make it worthwhile for people. You know, it's, it's it, we're, we're in a place where like everybody wants your email address and like I suffer from this too in my own inbox. So if, if somebody's willing to take a chance and let me talk to them twice a month, like I, I really try and make it worthwhile. Um, but with the added benefit of you don't have to ever miss anything because algorithms, you know. <laughs>
0: Right, yeah. right. Right on. Well, hey, thanks again for joining us today. Um, we appreciate it. The Perfect Bound Podcast is brought to you by the Panel Jumpers. See everything, Cole Hornaday, and I do at the Panel And if you want to email us, uh email us at PerfectBound Podcast at gmail.com. Um subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or however you however you get your podcasts at PerfectBound Uh thanks again. Frank for joining us today and we will see you next time.